What is going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of the Boom Boom Performance Podcast. Today's guest is a good old friend, Christopher Barricat, which is one of the smartest guys in the natural bodybuilding space. He is a competitive natural bodybuilder himself. He is a natural bodybuilding coach. Um, he is a scientist, a college professor, an educator. He has multiple degrees um, through college. He, he is the creator of Max Hype Training. He does a lot of cool shit, and he's a very, very smart guy, and I was pumped to get him on the show. Um, full transparency, Chris, if you're listening to this, we're going to have to do it again because I think I could have picked your brain for another three hours just on random topics. Uh, but we covered a lot of good stuff. We definitely dug into natural bodybuilding because I love to talk about what it takes to get extremely lean or get extremely muscular in a natural setting because, as we know, that is one of the most – physically, um, emotionally, neurologically demanding and challenging things that you could possibly do is getting that shredded at a specific deadline time. It's so fascinating to me how these guys do it. So we dug into nutrition. We dug into a lot of training stuff, which I think you guys are going to find very, very um, interesting and just helpful because Chris takes such a science-based approach where it's not just, okay, train your muscles twice a week. It's train your muscles two to three times a week, plus vary the angles, vary the grips, look at the degrees of what your joints are moving. Like He really goes into the science to make sure that your muscles are going to grow at the best possible rate and the most efficient rate possible while being able to consistently do it long-term because as he knows just as well as I do – all the science in the world doesn't matter if adherence isn't playing a big part in that. And he definitely um, brings that out in this interview and brings that out with all of his clients. So today is an awesome, awesome interview um, with somebody that, who I have known for years now, somebody who I get along really well with and somebody I see eye to eye on. But it helps so much to have the science guy, the guy that's actually in the trenches of the studies, come on the show and talk about it. Guys, before we get into the show, I say this every time, but I'm going to keep saying it like I say every time. Take a screenshot of this show right now. Tag myself at Cody.BoomBoom and tag Chris at Christopher.Barricat on Instagram. Put it on your story. Put it on your news feed. Tag us both so we know that you're listening. We know that you like it. And let us know what you do like about it. A lot of you guys are tagging me on your stories, and it helps so much because then I see you in my DM, and I get to see who's listening to it. Um, But I want to know what you like about it. So when I respond to you, Tell me what you love. Tell me who you want to see next. Tell me what you love learning about so I can do more and more of that. And on top of that, guys, just sharing across social media, whether that's Instagram story, newsfeed, Snapchat, email, texting someone, Facebook, anywhere you can tag me, anywhere you can't tag me, it always helps because more and more people seeing that you're listening helps us grow the show. Last but not least, if you do want to donate to the show so we can actually grow it even more, get better guests, get better equipment, put out more content for you to absorb for free and get better, you can donate at patreon.com slash boomboomperformance. There's also a link in the description. Now, guys, without any further ado, let's get on to this awesome interview with my good friend, Christopher Barricat. All right, Chris Barricat, Dude, I'm excited to have you on the podcast. It's been a long time since we actually got to sit down and talk. Shit, like last time I saw you, I think it was... 2016 physique summit like it was a while ago at least or maybe even 15 it was a while ago um and dude i i really appreciated you just because you knew a lot of people there i didn't know that many people there i flew out from seattle alone to missouri and you guys were like yo just come kick it with us and i chill with you the whole weekend soaked up a lot of knowledge and it was a blast man so i'm excited to introduce you to my subscribers and let them hear your knowledge man and then so they know who you are why don't you kind of give us a rundown for uh, those who are unfamiliar who is Chris in a nutshell? For sure, man. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on, dude. It has been way too long. And uh, I do think that was the 2016 Physique Summit, but 
man, it just all flies by. It might have even been 15. You're right. I'm not, I'm not positive, but it all flies by. And thanks for having me on again, man. So just to give you guys a little background about who I am, uh, my name's Christopher Barricat. I'm currently a full-time coach, but I'm also a part-time professor at the University of Tampa. Um, I teach nutritional supplements over there. I have experience researching, um, working on a couple publications right now. Have a couple studies that are published as a co-author in the exercise science field. So, this is basically what I do. I'm a natural competitor bodybuilder, and the majority of my clients are physique athletes that compete. But some of them are also just gym pop that are trying to better their health, improve their physique, and all that. Love it, dude. So, before we get into bodybuilding, which is what I really want to stay focused on today, I do want to touch on uh, you being a professor and everything because I'm curious about how things go in the lab. Like, what are like some miss uh, I guess things people don't quite understand about what really goes down in the labs, how long it takes, what goes into the work and everything like that, and what we should be looking out for. Because I think a, a big issue to be like, quote unquote, science-based is people will read the abstract or just the conclusion of a study. And, and if you dig into the study, it can be pretty damn confusing if you're not in the lab, like actually writing this stuff. So what are some things that we need to know and, and might be uh, misunderstandments? For sure. I mean, just some things I think it's important for everybody to take into consideration. Um, just because you see the conclusion of a study doesn't necessarily mean it's true. And what I mean by that is when you're, when you're conducting research and you're looking at data, right, you're, trying, you're looking at numbers and you're trying to make sense of it. So every author that publishes a study, it's essentially like they're telling the story based around the numbers that they've collected, okay? So you can take the same exact data set and give it to a completely different research group and they might interpret those findings completely differently. So their conclusion would be much different than the conclusion that's written and published. So as someone who might not have a good understanding of science, statistics, data collection, it's just really important to understand that you don't have to take the conclusion as like an end-all be-all. Um, there's a lot of different ways to interpret one set of data. And um, the biggest issue in the exercise science field is that a lot of these studies are dealing with relatively small um, groups. And we're only really reporting the means, right? So we're looking at the averages between the two. And from what I've seen as a researcher, the individual differences from subject to subject are so big that sometimes the average doesn't really mean that much to me. Um, so it's just something to take into consideration. I, I could provide for a few examples if you'd like as well. Yeah, I mean, examples would be great. But then also like, how do we take that and apply it? Like, what, what does that mean for the listener? Like, okay, I can't trust the studies or can I, or, or is this where just experience, like, like trying things out a little bit of bro science, thinking about these things and over time seeing what actually works. Yeah. So, um, I'll provide a few examples and I'll also try to give some takeaways. So, um, in the research world and in, in the science world, um, N equals one is usually, not valuable to a scientist, right? If you have one individual, um, that doesn't really matter. So if you look at case studies, they don't hold the same amount of weight compared to an experimental study with, you know, 30 to 50 people in it. However, as a coach like you are, 
And as a coach like I am, sometimes N equals one with every single variable controlled for means more to me than N equals 30 with other variables not necessarily perfectly controlled because you can't, right? So for example, in a research study, um, we've, con we've, we've dealt with subjects where we tracked their nutrition, but we didn't directly control their nutrition. So it was a training study and um, we would basically make sure that we had each subject track and log their nutrition. And then what we saw was that both groups we're eating relatively the same amount of macronutrients uh, in regards to the percent of total calories. And we also made sure that every subject had at least 1.5 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight. So there was some control. It's not like a complete free-for-all. Um, but my point is when you're working with an individual and you can control their nutrition to the T and you're controlling their training to the T, I just feel like you have more control of all the variables that matter. Now, things that I've seen in the lab are you'd put someone through a 10-week training program. We're busting all of them up in the lab. Like we're pushing everybody very, very hard. So training intensity is matched, which is great. And the intensity in the lab is way different than any commercial gym, um, which is really cool to be a part of an experience. But something that I've seen is You'll put subjects through a 10-week training program. Somebody will gain zero pounds of muscle, and someone else will gain 12 pounds of lean body mass in 10 weeks. So when you look at the actual study, that doesn't get reported, right? You just get the mean between group one and group two. So to me, it's just the genetic differences from person to person are so, so valuable. Like that's where the differences really lie. So let's talk about that real quick, actually, like genetics, like you are in the bodybuilding world with majority of your clients, you personally, obviously, and especially in the natural world, I think we can talk about this too, is, is how important are genetics and like how much can we actually influence our genetics to hopefully change or break plateaus or get to the next level? Genetics or can we? Are, genetics are everything, literally everything. Um, in the research world, we have something called non-responders. I don't necessarily fully agree with that but to a certain extent um i have worked with clients where you know i'll give them a great training stimulus we'll provide them with a great nutrition protocol and do they make some progress yeah they make a little bit but not nearly as much progress as other clients that are doing relatively the same stuff right like they're focusing on progressive overload um they're not only focused on mechanical tension, but we're doing some sort of metabolic work and we're making sure we're getting cell swelling and everything. But genetics are freaking huge. And the reason I say that is simply because like I've taken people, put them through the same training study, the same training program. And some people gain no muscle and other people put on 12 pounds of muscle. So um, it's crazy. I've also seen some of those subjects that gain the most amount of muscle also lost body fat at the same time and uh it's just it's insane it's absolutely insane it's it's awesome and unfortunate at the same time yeah. <laughs> depending on who you are like i think it's important that everybody hones in on their own talents right like me personally i don't believe that i have great genetics for bodybuilding by any means um but I, it's not that like I admit it and I accept it and I'm like, okay, I'm not going to try hard. 
I just also know I'm not genetic elite and I totally like, I accept that. Like I know that, but I still want to be my best. So I think it's important that you don't get caught up in uh, comparing yourself to others. Um, Cause that is just going to never provide yourself with like self love and, and self value. Like you're, you're never going to feel like you're enough if you're just looking at other people, because there's always somebody better. There's always somebody better. Um, so yeah, I'll kind of, I'll leave it at that for now. I think that's so important, man, especially in a sport that is completely based on judging your physique. Um, there's so many factors that go into that, even just from personal opinion. So I think it's very, very important that you said that. And just, I mean, in general, obviously comparison is not a good thing, but especially in the sport of bodybuilding. Um, so one thing I really want to dig in with you is program design, because like you just kind of alluded to some, some stuff that you put into your programming, but one thing I've noticed over the years is there's a lot of people who, I mean, there's two camps. There's like the intensity camp and then the volume camp. And there's not a lot of people kind of blending the two or utilizing different modalities and intensities and loads and, and different stressors inside the bodybuilding world. And when I got your program, Max Hype, I was like really happily surprised to see like speed work and explosive work and the way you guys undulated it. Like it was so cool. So can you talk a little bit about why you put those things into a bodybuilding program, even though like speed work might not be quote unquote typical bodybuilding. For sure. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Um, yeah. So on max height, we do include some sort of speed work. And the reason for that is for there's multiple reasons, but a, you can stimulate different muscle fiber types. Um, so your fast twitch muscle fiber types actually have more growth potential. So I think that's important. Um, by improving the rate at which your central nervous system can basically turn on that muscle fiber, um, you're going to improve your strength overall, right? So if you improve your power, you're also going to improve your absolute strength. Therefore, it's just going to help you work with heavier loads while you're working in that hypertrophy range. Um, so just, it's really important to include explosive concentrics, right? So Obviously, if you're working with like 40 to 60% of your one rep max, that weight is going to move at a fast velocity. Like right now, velocity-based training is getting a lot of attention. Um, however, if you're working with like 80% of your one rep max, your intent should still be to perform the concentric in an explosive manner, but the weight is just so heavy that the velocity isn't going to be as fast, right? But I think it's important that you kind of train yourself to contract explosively and that's why we include some of that power work in there is there any like going off of that is there any uh validity to somebody's like muscle hardness or density there's a lot of uh and it's kind of bro science but there's a lot of guys that talk about lifting heavy or fast because it gets that like really hard grainy look is there any science to prove that at all or is it just is that genetics as well yeah so that's a great question um from my understanding there's no there's no science that would show like training a certain way is going to alter the density or hardness of a muscle. Um, there is something called muscle quality that can be measured via ultrasound uh, using a, a mode called echo intensity. Um, but that's kind of a completely different subject. And then one thing I will say is genetics do vary the density of muscle tissue. Okay, and I don't want to get too far off topic, but here's one thing to consider. Um, the DEXA scan, right, that measures lean body mass, fat mass, and bone mineral density. Um, it actually 
basically assumes a certain density for lean body mass, right? Like that's all based off a formula and basically like a, not an algorithm, but there's a formula in there that says, okay, most people's lean body mass is this density. Um, that machine is the best possible way to measure bone mineral density. It's the gold standard for it. But muscle density can vary slightly from individual to individual, and that is a genetic thing. So a lot of it uh, can be based off like ethnicity and stuff like that. Okay, I, I love that explanation. It makes it, it makes a lot more sense. What about like, and I, I want to say Mass actually just came out with a study to kind of debunk this, but Greg Knuckles was the one that wrote about it. But um, I'm curious on your take as far as like muscle fiber type training, which can kind of fit into that same category. Um, basically choosing muscle body parts to stick in a certain rep range intensity or even people in a certain rep range or intensity based on their fiber type dominance or that muscle group's fiber type dominance. Is there any validity to that? Do you implement any of that? Or is that just, again? Oh, man. There's so much uh, conflicting research out there. So it's that's, that's great, though. It's actually great that you mentioned that. Because like I said in the beginning of the podcast, you can't look at one study, take that conclusion, and run with it. There's so many studies that are conflicting one another. Um, now, this is one thing I will say. I think if you're an endurance athlete and you've been doing cross country your whole life, if you stop running and you start doing weightlifting, you are going to have morphological changes to that muscle fiber type. Like things will start changing. Um, I personally don't program too much based around that. Um, however, I think some muscles like, okay, just for example, your deltoids, I think sometimes it just responds to higher rep work compared to heavier, lower rep stuff. Um, I think legs are a muscle group that definitely respond to both. But for hypertrophy, I've just seen people explode when they do like sets of 20. Um, so even though there isn't concrete evidence, I, I still think there's something there and we just don't fully understand it. That's a good enough answer for me. And I think that comes back to experience if you work with enough people and you learn what works for them what works for you you're going to start kind of incorporating what what is best and how to program um and like continuing down this program path what are some of the big like we talked about intensity and, and explosive work but let's dig a little bit deeper into that and just different uh metabolic stress and all these things that you implement into max hype or your clients programming what is kind of like your checklist for people listening to like make sure that they are doing so they have a well-rounded program to build muscle Awesome. That's a great question. So there's three primary mechanisms behind hypertrophy and muscle growth. So the first one's mechanical tension. So you want to make sure that you're executing your movements in a safe and smart manner where you're actually putting a maximal amount of tension on the muscle. If you're not controlling the load, you're not maximizing how much tension is actually on that muscle that you want. So if you see people with really sloppy eccentrics and really sloppy concentrics, they're missing out. Like, I really think it's important to stay in control and like your intent should be like, okay, I want to maximize how much tension I'm creating if your goal is muscle growth. Now to continue upon the topic of um, mechanical tension, once you kind of nail down your form and execution and you have it standardized, then you want to focus on progressive overload. So you're like, okay, this exercise is performed in this manner. 
I'm very, very comfortable executing it this way. Every single rep looks basically identical. Now from week to week, I just want to add some sort of volume by doing, you know, another rep here or there or adding a couple of pounds here or there to that load. Um, so that'll be like the first takeaway. Then secondly, you have metabolic stress. So I think it's really important that you don't just do things in the, you know, three to eight rep range and just do strength work. I think it's important that you go to that 12 to 20 rep range and start creating more metabolic stress, have more lactic acid accumulation. Um, that stresses the muscle in a different way, and it does increase muscle protein synthesis and basically is another mechanism to grow. And then one that kind of comes with it hand in hand will be cell swelling. So just getting a really good pump that's going to come with higher rep work. Um, and metabolic stress typically comes with cell swelling. Do you do the, the top bodybuilders that you train or you don't train, do they actually follow these science-based protocols or do you see people that are out there crushing it that are still stuck in that one rep range that they've been doing for years, but they're still at the top and maybe that's genetics too, but I'm just curious. Cause I think I do see some, some bodybuilders who are stuck in that like 12 to 20 rep range 24 yeah, seven, but yeah. they look great. So you, you really can't say much. Do you yeah. see that too? I do see that. Um, I, going back to that, those subjects that gain 12 pounds of muscle in 10 week period, right? It's like some people are just high responders. So you can give them the worst training program and they're going to get great results <laughs> as long as they're doing something. Um, it's, I'm serious, man. Even, even in terms of volume, like you can give a high responder, a very low volume program. They'll make great progress. You give that high responder, a high volume training program and they make great progress too. Like it doesn't matter. Um, one thing I will say though, for those who aren't genetically, I think the biggest thing that I've seen from myself and from my clients is training frequency. So if you take someone that was on a bro split and they're training each muscle group once a week, which I have done when I first started, once I went to twice a week, I made an insane amount of progress. And same thing for those clients that come to me starting at once a week frequency and then increasing it to twice a week. I think no matter how good or bad your genetics are, that's a guaranteed way to make improvements. Yeah. And even if it's not, I mean, half the time, just adding that frequency is just going to help you get more volume in, volume in right? Because yeah. if you're doing a bro split halfway through a chest day, you're smashed. You're so fatigued. You're not going to be pushing real volume. Yeah. And I think um, you can take the same exact amount of volume and split it up in two days. So it seems like each workout is quote unquote easier because you're doing less, but you'll get a much better growth stimulus just by, just by providing that stimulus more frequently. I love the way you're going with this too, man, because I think that this is why individualized coaching is so important because if you're genetically elite and something worked for you and you try to just give that to everybody, I mean, it's just not a good coaching practice, but I feel bad for the people who buy into it because especially the way media is now, you know what I mean? Anybody can be a, a quote unquote coach nowadays. So it's hard to kind of decipher for the general population. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Like some of the very popular coaches, um, they just have like, let's say Mr. Olympia or Miss Olympia or whatever it may be. And like they give these very similar training protocols to hundreds of people and they're not getting a great response from them, but they have a genetic elite athlete kind of representing them, and then they, they build a, a good reputation that way.
Yeah. So to completely contradict what I just said, <laughs> I want to ask you, if you could only pick one training split, what do you think is the most optimal split for the average individual who does want to build muscle? Like whether their long-term goal is to be lean or be jacked or anything, like what do you feel like is the most optimal for strength gains, muscle gains, recovery, so on and so forth? Cool. Um, and assuming they're allowed to train five days a week? Yep. I would do upper, lower, off, push, pull, legs, off, repeat. And why is that? You'll hit I love the split, but I just want, I want to hear why. Give me some explanation. Yeah, you'll, you'll hit everything twice a week that way. Um, it still gives you enough, like by splitting up your rest day, instead of doing five days on, two days off, you give yourself time to recover, like in between that upper lower. So you're fresh for the next upper session. Um, I just, I mean, yeah, you're going to hit everything multiple times per week. You can also, I think it would be important to, alter your exercise selection, right? So let's say on day one uh, for upper body, you're doing flat barbell bench press. On your push day, you might not want to do that flat barbell bench press again. You might want to do a, a dumbbell or you want to do like an incline press instead. So it just gives you an opportunity to use a, a pretty solid amount of different exercises. So you're loading muscles at different angles, and basically overloading different parts of its range of motion. Um, and it still gives you enough time to recover from session. I love it. I really want to get into exercise selection. But before I do, with this split, are you splitting it up? Like your push-pull legs are more hypertrophy-based. Your upper-lower is going to be a little bit lower rep range. Maybe that's when you throw in your speed work. Like kind of dive into that for me. Yeah, yeah. For me, I, I do. Um, right now, my my day ones and day twos are more quote unquote strength based. Um, same way it is in max height, like upper lower is kind of more strength based to a, to a small degree. And then my other three days of the week are more hypertrophy slash strength endurance. So um, you're just working in the higher rep range, just doing more drop sets, stuff like that. And then those first two days, I'm just doing straight sets. Um, nothing to true, true failure. But yeah, lower rep ranges that are more taxing on the central nervous system. Is is there any reason why those come first in the week? Uh, not necessarily, just preference. There's so many ways to approach it. Um, I think one thing that's important is, as you'll see on day one, I make sure I keep my lower back fresh because for the the next day is leg day, and like if you're squatting and deadlifting or whatever, uh, you want to make sure that you're you're taking these things into consideration, right? So on, on day one, I'm not doing any sort of bent over exercises that fatigue my lower back. So with this system, you have, is this, I mean, first of all, is this a form of daily undulated periodization in a way? And why is this way of periodizing better than just a linear fashion of like, I'm going to focus on strength for the next eight weeks, and then I'll shift into hypertrophy, um, kind of more old school approach. Obviously, what you're doing now is a much more popular approach nowadays, but I'm curious of why it's so much more optimal. Yeah, I, I don't even want to say it's better, to be honest with you. I just want to say it's my, my current preference. Um, I think optimal is extremely hard to define because A, we don't necessarily know what that is, and that's still what we're researching, and B, optimal is different for everybody. However, one thing that's the most important to me is enjoyment. Um, if I'm going to the gym five days a week, I better like to be there. I better enjoy my training session. Uh, I really don't enjoy strength work that much. 
but I understand it's important. And I absolutely love more bodybuilding hypertrophy work. Um, so I just try to blend it. And like I said, it's my preference. Um, and that's going back to individualizing your coaching. Like I ask my clients like, Hey, what's your preference? Like, what do you enjoy? I can put them on a program that's quote unquote optimal, but if they don't like it, they're not going to adhere to it. And then they're not going to get results. So it's like, you got to make sure that you actually enjoy what you're doing and continue making modifications to your training program that make you a progress more and b enjoy your training more. I love it, dude. Adherence is such an overlooked piece of all this. It's so important because if you're not consistent, then what's the point? Yeah, you're not going to get the results no matter what you're doing if you're not adhering. So let's get into uh, exercise selection. Like you started to talk about it a little bit, but I'm curious because I think there's this is another one of those things where I see a little bit of people on both sides of the camp. Some people do the same shit over and over and over again because you don't need exercise variation. You need like intensity and load variation, um, rep range variation. And then I see other people who are doing 12 different angles of flies in one day because they got to hit it from every angle. So kind of give us the no bullshit approach like what is actually optimal for exercise selection and then how do you vary it because you're somebody who actually talks about which i really like like even just like joint angles like where are you actually like loading the bar like even with a curl like you've talked about having your shoulders in extension versus flexion and elbows raised like dig into that a little bit and why it's important and, and what we can uh how we can put that into our training for sure so if your goal is to get really good at specific movements, just do those movements over and over and over again. Um, you'll get stronger and stronger at those movements. However, one downside is uh, you'll also create like a, a wearing pattern too, and your joints are going to start taking a hit over time because you're doing the same exact movement over and over and over. Um, that's one thing. If that's your goal, cool, go for it. Just keep it simple and continue doing those exercises. But if you want to maximize muscle growth, I think it's really important that you do hit everything from every possible angle. I think it's important that you include a, a larger selection of exercises that gives you the opportunity to do so. Um, and then going back to what you just mentioned about the, the bicep curls, that's the actual study I'm currently working on publishing. So I have data on this, it's just unpublished data. So I'll try to explain it to the best of my ability uh, <laughs> while we're live on this podcast. So you guys are kind of getting like an inside look before anyone else has. Love uh, it. So we had two groups. They're the same exact people. There is a control condition and an experimental condition. On week one, the subjects came in and they performed nine sets of bicep curls with their shoulder at zero degrees. So just think of a normal standing bicep curl, right? With your shoulder in neutral. Um, all this was performed on a cable machine, but it doesn't really matter. We kept intensity exactly the same. We matched for intensity. The following week, those same exact uh, subjects came in. They performed three sets at neutral, like they did on week one instead of all nine. Then they performed three sets with their shoulder extended. So think of a dumbbell incline bench where your arm is kind of behind you and you're getting a really good stretch on the long head of the bicep. And then think of a spider curl where your shoulder joint is flexed and you're getting that long head really, really short. And what we found was on the experimental condition where we varied joint angle, there was significantly greater muscle activation throughout the entire session. 
And then there was also increased fluid accumulation and quote unquote, like muscle damage at the distal bicep. So what that kind of signifies or, or kind of proves is by altering the joint angle and stressing the muscle in both its lengthened position and shortened position, we provided a stimulus that was potentially more growth provoking, if that makes sense. Um, I'm being very careful with my words because this was an acute study, right? Like we just measured a few variables. It's not like we ran it for 10 weeks and we compared the growth of one group compared to the other group. Um, however, these signs like increased muscle damage, increased fluid accumulation and cell swelling, we know that those are mechanisms of hypertrophy. So in theory, it should lead to more growth. Um, so that's what I found with this study, and that's what I'm currently working on publishing. So I'll try to provide um, different examples for other muscles. Does that make sense? So let's take, um, let's take the chest, right? If you were to perform a pec deck fly, like the, the machine fly, mm -hmm. you can get your chest overloaded in that fully shortened position. So when your upper arm is horizontally adducted across your body and like at the midline close to your sternum, that's when your chest is fully shortened, right? Now, if you were to do a dumbbell fly, the, there's basically no load at all at the top on the actual chest, right? The, the load is all on the shoulder joint. But when you're in that stretched position at the bottom of a dumbbell fly, that's where the most amount of load is on the actual muscle itself, right? So one exercise basically um, overloads the shortened position, and then the other exercise overloads the lengthened position. And they're providing a different kind of stimulus. And I think it's important that you use exercises that overload all portions of the range. Um, another visual for you guys just to kind of help out. If you were to do leg extensions, right? Where is the leg extension the absolute hardest? You see at the top. At the top, right? And that's where your knee is fully extended and the quadricep muscle is fully shortened, right? Right. Now, if you were to do a squat, when you're at the top of the movement and your knee is fully extended and your quad is quote unquote fully shortened, there's no tension on the quadricep at all, right? Right. So somebody would say like, oh yeah, just, just squat and leg press. You don't have to do leg extensions. Like you're, you're hitting your quads. It's like, yeah, of course you're training your quads doing compound movement, but you're not overloading the quadriceps at all in their fully shortened position. And there's a, there's much benefit to doing that. Um, just because a muscle activates and turns on at once doesn't mean you're actually overloading every single muscle fiber within that muscle. Like people have a misunderstanding. Um, muscle fibers don't run from origin to insertion. Like a muscle fiber isn't this huge, long, long thing that runs from the origin to the insertion point. There's thousands and thousands of muscle fibers. So it's important that you kind of train different, different portions of that range. So you stimulate all of the muscle fibers within an entire muscle. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. That's actually a really, really good explanation, that entire thing. So I'm glad you went that route because I think a lot of people, because, and it's been like this for years now, but volume, intensity, and frequency was so popular of like, these are the main components of muscle growth. Yeah. 
master these and nothing else matters, people forget about these things. Um, and that's super beneficial. Thanks, man. Yeah. And I, I mean, I'll provide another example just because I think people can take a lot away from it. And sometimes by using different muscle groups, people start connecting dots. Um, for example, we'll take the hamstrings, right? Their primary function is knee flexion. Their secondary function is hip extension, right? So a lying hamstring curl machine is a really good opportunity to train your hamstrings in their shortened position. Um, if you extend your hips into the pad and, and squeeze your glutes, A, you're starting off in hip extension, so you're automatically turning on your hamstrings. Now, if you flex the knee and bring your heel as close to your butt as possible and you're doing the hamstring curl, you feel your hamstring get shorter and shorter as you're performing that hamstring curl. That's awesome. So that movement is overloading the shortened position of the hamstring. Now let's take a seated hamstring curl. Your hips are flexed, right? You're seated, your hips are flexed. You can still perform knee flexion and you're doing the hamstring curl, but you physically can't get that hamstring as short as possible because your knee is in a flexed position. Still a really good exercise, it's still very valuable, but it doesn't overload that fully shortened position. And then to finish off on the hamstrings, if you were to do something like an RDL, you feel that massive stretch at the bottom, right? So that's an exercise that overloads the lengthened position of the hamstring. So I think it's really important that people just, especially if you're trying to focus on hypertrophy and, and maximizing muscle growth, that you're selecting exercises that overload the hamstrings and or and you that overload every muscle in all portions of the range. Um, and to continue upon that, it's a complete waste of time to me to do two exercises that are basically the same. Um, an example of that using the hamstrings again, I would never perform lying hamstring curls and standing hamstring curls on the same day. You know those machines where you can do like unilateral standing hamstring curl? Yeah. The reason I wouldn't perform those two on the same exact day is because the hip is in an extended position on both exercises. So you're basically just doing the same thing on two separate machines. Right. right. It would be like doing a, a dumbbell preacher curl and then doing a, a barbell preacher curl, like an easy bar preacher curl on the same day. It's like your shoulders in the same exact position. You're just performing more elbow flexion in the same exact position. Like I would do a preacher curl and like an incline dumbbell curl where I'm, I'm varying that shoulder angle. Um, yeah. I love that, dude. I think that breaks it down perfectly. Let, let's touch on before I want to get into dieting and contest prep and stuff like that. But I, I really want to touch on real quick. Um, the importance of unilateral training uh, in bodybuilding, you just did a post not that long ago on Bulgarian split squats. I've always been a big fan. I had a big back injury. So for me, unilateral work was perfect because I could unload the spine, but keep tension on the muscle. But I'm curious to you, like, when do you implement this stuff? And like, how important is it in bodybuilding? Yeah, um, I think, first of all, I think I need to incorporate more of it in my lower half. And that's what I'm getting to now, like in my own training. Um, I think it's super important for bodybuilding because we're getting judged on symmetry. And no matter what, there's always going to be some sort of imbalance, but you want to be as symmetrical as possible, uh, especially if you think as an artist, right? And, and if you bodybuild for the art of it. Um, and then from a performance standpoint, by doing unilateral work, you are improving muscular balance and you're decreasing your risk of injury. So 
I think it's huge on every single facet. Um, and then the problem is everyone's doing unilateral work for their upper body, but they never do it for lower body. So yeah, if you only squat, leg press, hack squat, you're not doing any lunges or any Bulgarian split squats or anything like that, I highly recommend that you start performing some sort of unilateral work for the lower half. I'm the exact same way. It's mainly for my lower body too, but um, I think it applies all over. I think people just more likely avoid it on the lower body is is kind of what I'm getting to. Yeah, they do. And man, like Bulgarian split squats to me, man, are so much harder than a, a standard barbell back squat. 100%. And that's probably why people avoid it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like I have to go there mentally, like to a deeper place when I'm doing split squats compared to back squats. And some people think it's crazy, but I mean, give it a shot and you'll probably find out too. Yeah. Well, and especially because like when you like you, you kind of said this earlier, when you get to the top of a squat, it's not a rest, but it's kind of like, okay, let me take a breather. When you get to the top of a Bulgarian split squat, there is no rest. You're still trying to balance. You still got tension. You're still crushing dumbbells, barbell, whatever you're loaded with. It's rough. For sure. It's super rough. So um, let's get into uh, cutting for stage and stuff like that. I'm curious of, before we get into any science, like what's your opinion on just like how specific, how deep do people actually have to dig to actually get contest lean? Because I think for a while it wasn't well known. And I want to say it was Cliff Wilson, but don't quote me on this, but he's been posting a lot of stuff with his athletes and and even like showing macros of them getting pretty low in high cardio. And and I think it's kind of nice because people are like, Oh shit, it takes a little bit more than I realized to get that shredded. Um, and yes, there's a lot of genetics, but I think regardless of your genetics, it's a whole nother level of lean. So, so what does it actually take? Like, what's your take on this? Yeah, it's great that you mentioned that, man. I'm, I really enjoy those posts that Cliff has been making and I appreciate him doing that because for a few years, people thought that they're going to step on stage eating 300 carbs a day. And like they're going to get stage lean. It's like, no, that's not going to happen. And then like the year after that, they're like, oh, well, if I have a really good uh, reverse diet period and I quote unquote build up my metabolic capacity, I can, you know, get stage shredded on much higher calories. And it's like, no, that's not really true either. So um, I just really enjoy that he's putting light on that. It's completely different from individual to individual, but to get truly stage lean, it hurts for everybody. It hurts for everybody. Like even someone like Alberto Nunez, he mentions this all the time, like his carbohydrate intake may stay relatively high, like quote unquote high. And it's, it's relative for everyone, but he still feels like a zombie at the end of prep when he's super, super lean. Um, so yeah, it, it, it takes you going to a level you don't necessarily want to go to, but at the same time, if you know that's what you have to do, and if you're a competitive person that you just, you suck it up and you get it done. Um, I guess I can use myself as an example, if you'd like. Yeah. Um, at the end of my contest prep on non-training days, my fats were at 60 grams per day, but my carbs were only at 50 grams per day. And that was just from vegetables. And then I kept protein around 225. So I was literally just eating protein veggies and maybe an additional fat source but i would usually use like fattier protein so i was eating like a lot of salmon and grass-fed beef and stuff um and then on my training days i was at 150 grams of carbs and 50 grams of fat um so i mean to me i think that's pretty darn low especially after like 
you know, dieting for 26 weeks. Like I can hit those numbers, you know, for the next week and I'll feel completely fine because my body fat levels are higher. I haven't been dieting for a long period of time, but once you're dieting for like 16, 20 weeks and you have to like dig and dig to these lower levels, you really, really feel it. Does, does anybody, and this might be individual, is there like a, I don't know if tipping point is the right word, but I'll use myself as an example. And I think a lot of people see this with reverse dieting. You can reverse diet in, I mean, and I don't do, I do bodybuilding style training, very similar to max hype. And I got up to 400 grams of carbs, maintaining my weight, like reverse diet went great, but I just started a cut not that long ago. And I have to get to that same point where it's like, fuck, okay, I got to go even like below 200, to even start seeing fat loss at all. Um, and usually, like, it's not as simple as, okay, just cut 50 grams of carbs and you're going to start seeing fat loss happen. Is there any merit to that? Is that just individual? Or is there a lot of people that kind of have that breaking point where it's like, you just, you got to suck it up and get past it to really start seeing things happen? Yeah, I think a lot of it is individual and depends where you start, you know, like, if you start, if you're a male and you're starting off at like 18 or 20% body fat, you should be able to get down to, you know, 14, 15, pretty comfortably like just being really smart with your food decisions, your macros, quote unquote, should be high, relatively speaking. Um, but yeah, once you I mean, for everyone, their body fat set points different. But once you want to get below that set point, you're going to have to just push, you know, like, I can maintain 10% really easily. But it's funny, 10% doesn't look great on me because I, I store a lot of fat in my midsection, where my hamstrings and my quads are shredded. And my back is shredded. But like, my abs aren't. So unfortunately, if I want to like have abs and look good on IG and like go to the beach with the six pack, like I need to go below my set point and that takes a little bit of digging. So it's different for everyone, man. I have, um, I, I honestly have some bikini competitors that weigh 110 pounds that eat more carbohydrates per day than my bodybuilders that weigh 200 pounds. <laughs> so crazy crazy it's absolutely crazy and then i also have like bikini competitors that are the same weight and one of them has to eat 40 grams of carbs a day and the other one can eat 160 and it's like yeah it's just so many variables come into play yeah it's it again just more merit to individualization man it's just it's so important to look deeper um what about like we all talk about macros so much especially when it comes to body composition because obviously they're kind of the crux of what really makes changes as you start getting lean as you start dieting how important does the micronutrient composition of your foods come into play and and do you ever see changes in body composition with simply altering that versus macros oh man so it's a great question i think nutrient dense whole foods are so important um with myself personally and with my clients as the food gets lower and lower so as your macro goals get lower and lower your your food choices get better and better because those micronutrient dense foods keep you fuller for a longer period of time they're usually higher in fiber um so you're just more satiated and you feel better by eating those micronutrient dense foods. Like when I'm dieting, I would never want to waste like 30 grams of carbs on like, I don't know, like a bar, like a, not even a protein bar, like, like a granola bar. Like I wouldn't want to waste macros on that or like on a pop tart. Like I'd rather eat like a piece of fruit and like nuts or something that's going to keep me satiated for a long period of time or 
um, I was, I was just eating way more veggies per day, you know, like in the off season, I try to have a minimum of two to three servings of veggies per day, like whole foods. But when I was dieting, I was probably eating like nine to 10 servings of veggies a day because they were in every single meal. Right. And it just kept me full. And I, I honestly felt good. And a lot of people don't, don't necessarily believe this, but I felt really good into my first show of the year. And then after that, that's when I really started feeling like death. So I actually hit stage condition feeling really good, but maintaining stage condition was hell. Like looking at it, like I remember I moved into my apartment, uh, like I, I moved apartments um, during contest prep. And like when I looked at the flight of stairs, like a 20 flight of stairs, I just looked at it in defeat. I was like... <laughs> I don't want to do this. Like, I don't, I, I don't have the energy to physically walk up those stairs right now. And, uh, yeah, that's something a lot of people that like get super lean, they'll, they've experienced stuff like that. Like you just want to lay down. You notice that your knee goes down. Like if you enjoy like taking walks or something, like you just prefer to lay down instead. And then obviously libido is gone and stuff like that. So and sometimes with knee, you don't even notice it. Like you'll just, if you're wearing a tracker, like that's what happened to me. Like I just noticed all of a sudden, and even though I work from home, I take a lot of walks. And then all of a sudden I notice, man, the last couple of weeks, I'm down three, 4,000 steps. What the fuck? Like, yeah. and it's just because I just naturally don't go outside to walk. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so going after, so let's say we've done the cut, whether you're doing a photo shoot, you're just fat loss stage, whatever. And now we're moving on to uh, quote unquote bulking. I want to know your stance on like bulking versus lean gaining, um, how long somebody should plan, like what's the rate of gains? I had a couple questions come in for my Q&A, basically asking how much should I strive to gain per month? If I want to build muscle, like that's my main goal, but I really don't want to get fat. Um, and I figured you're the perfect person to ask, so I'll, so I'll save it for you instead of the Q&A. No, thanks, man. I appreciate it. Um, again, I, I, I'll try to answer some general guidelines. But man, it comes down to individuality. 100%. So I generally say if you are quote unquote lean gaining, um, you should look to gain a pound to three pounds a month. Um, so one to three is what I normally go with. But if you are a younger person, I don't know if a lot of your audience is between the ages of like 17 and 22 or something. 25 like that. to 35. Okay. For those younger individuals, I think it's really important that they allow their rate of gain to be more aggressive just because you can gain more muscle tissue at a faster rate. Or even if you're 25 to 35 and weight training is relatively new to you, don't take these baby turtle steps. Don't do that. Um, you can grow muscle tissue at a pretty quick rate if it is a novel stimulus to yourself. Now, if you've been doing this for years and years, you definitely want to take it slower because you're closer to your genetic potential and the rate of gains come at a slower rate. Um, but then the most important tool is not paying attention to just the number on the scale, but by looking in the mirror. Like if you're gaining weight, but you're just looking better and better, continue gaining weight. If you're gaining weight and you just look softer and, and puffier, then slow down your rate of gain, you know? Um, for example, let's kind of go full circle to, to the start of the podcast. That individual that gained 12 pounds of lean body mass in 10 weeks, if I told them, hey, man, slow down your rate of gain, 
we would have just slowed down his muscle gain, right? Whereas that person that gained zero pounds of actual muscle, if he was gaining four pounds of fat a month, we want to tell him like, hey, like slow down on your calories um, and kind of dial it in a little bit. So if you can tell that you're putting on quality tissue and you just look better and better, continue. But if you're not looking the way you want, then slow down your rate of loss. And for an advanced individual, somebody like you or I who has been lifting for years, how slow is that process? Because I think sometimes people expect faster results with muscle gain than is actually necessary. And I mean, to add to that, like one pound of muscle is significant. So maybe that's what I, I want you to kind of solidify more. For sure. Yeah, I think um, people need to realize that one pound of muscle is very significant. And for those of you that kind of laugh it off, think of a 16 pounds, uh, 16 ounce steak. Right, like play in front this is what I always say. I love this like, analogy. Yeah, like that's a lot of tissue, you know? And obviously you're not going to put all 16 ounces just on your pecs, but that's a lot of meat. So, um, man, if you gain four pounds in a year or something like that, that's a huge win, you know? Like be proud of that. Um, I've seen people make posts or I've seen, I've seen people comment on someone else's progress and say like, oh, you're proud that you gain like two pounds of muscle and they like try to belittle it. It's like, yeah, he should be proud. Like he's been doing this for so long and he's continuing to progress instead of stay exactly the same or regress. And, you know, it comes with a lot of effort, consistency and hard work. So um, definitely, you know, acknowledge yourself and acknowledge your efforts. Um, Love that. Good to stop and smell the roses. Dude, so there's a lot of trainers who listen to this podcast and coaches. Where can they go? Do you have any recommendations for them? They're always asking me, like, what books can I read? What websites can I study? Who can I listen to? Where can some of these people start getting in on some of the information that you're – I mean, obviously, you're in a a university setting that's a little bit different. But for those who are not, where are your, like, top recommendations for them to learn the physiology of this stuff, like the really in-depth science? So if you're a personal trainer that's working with people in the gym – I highly recommend you look at RTS, uh, Resistance Training Specialist. I think it's like rts123.com. Um, they offer a, a course and a certificate that's absolutely incredible. Um, you'll learn more from that course than every other like PT cert combined if you are focused on resistance training. Um, that's what um, – I don't know if you guys are familiar with Ben Pakulski and Joe Bennett and all yeah. them. But they're really into RTS. So yeah, I highly recommend them. Um, and everything else is really tough. I can't recommend like one specific textbook or whatever it may be. However, you have uh, interviewed Jose Antonio and he does have a really good textbook on sports supplementation and sports nutrition. So that's one to check out. Um, for me, I typically just keep up with the current literature, the the research that's being published on on a regular basis. Um, and like I said, it's really important to draw your own conclusions. Um, if there's a specific topic that you guys are interested in learning in, instead of looking at one research study, read a meta-analysis, uh, or read like a research review on that specific topic. So if you were really interested in creatine, for example, reading one training study on creatine, isn't going to do much for you. But if you read the meta-analysis on creatine or like um, a position stand on creatine from a trusted organization, you'll get a lot more 
um, applicable information from that than just like one specific study by itself. Love it, dude. That's perfect, man. I don't want to take too much more of your time. I know we're running out, but I could probably sit here and talk to you all day and ask questions about this shit, man. I love it. So uh, before we wrap up, where can everybody find everything you provide, whether that's Max Hype, your Instagram, all that stuff? Thanks, man. Yeah, so my Instagram is simple, just my name, at Christopher.Barricat. Um, if you're interested in the training programs that I sell with my business partner, uh, Chris Elkins, the program is called Max Hype. And the website is maxhypetraining.com. And then um, all the athletes I work with, we go under my my brand is Competitive Breed. So you can check me out at competitivebreed.com and uh, feel free to inquire or shoot me an email on there. All right, guys, that is a wrap. I hope you enjoyed the show today. A couple quick announcements before I let you go. First and foremost, I just want to encourage you to check out the products I have in the description. First one is the Nutrition Hierarchy. This is a very cheap guide to literally mastering your diet. That's why it's called the All-Inclusive Guide to Mastering Your Diet. It's gonna teach you exactly what and how to manage your calories, your macros, your meal timing, your supplements, your micronutrients, literally everything you need to know about dieting and nutrition and how to change your body composition through nutrition is included in this book. Not just to get your results, but to actually teach you how to get those results along the way. The next thing is gonna be Functional Muscle, which is my first and right now my biggest product out there. This is the program that is based on years and years and years of functional training with tons of clients. So whether your goal is strength, fat loss, or muscle gain, you should be strength training towards these goals while prioritizing functional movement patterns to make sure that you are avoiding any injuries along the way. That's exactly what this program does, and it's great because it guides you through the process, it changes throughout the process, and it gives you demonstrations and explanations about everything you're doing so you never get confused and you always have a solution. You also get access into the Boom Boom Performance Podcast Forum, and that is the only way into the forum, and that's where you can ask me literally anything about anything, and I will help guide you through the process. Last thing I want to mention, guys, is if you could leave me a five-star rating and review, that would be fantastic because it literally is one of the biggest and best ways for me to grow in the iTunes charts. Oh, yeah, and real quick, if you're not subscribed, hit the damn subscribe button because I constantly bust out content for you guys, and I spend a lot of time and effort making sure that you guys can get better results for free by simply listening to this podcast. All right, guys, I'll catch you next time.